Well, let's continue in our study through the book of Judges and of the story of Gideon. And I want to begin by showing you a map which has some of the main places on that relate to the story of Gideon and his routing of the Midianite army. Uh, you'll see on the map uh, some familiar features. Right at the top you have the Sea of Galilee and the River Jordan flowing south into the Dead Sea. Uh, at the bottom end of Lake Galilee and to the west you'll see Mount Tabor. That's the mountain which features in the story of Deborah and Barak in chapter 4. To the left of that you can see the Valley of Jezreel along the path of the Kishon River and you can see marked on the map the location of Gideon's hometown of Ophrah. Incidentally, where the Kishon flows into the Mediterranean Sea, you'll note a little promontory just to the left, and that's actually the location of Mount Carmel, where Elijah would have his showdown with the prophets of Baal sometime later in Israel's history. So the Jezreel Valley runs southeast from the Mediterranean Sea, all the way down to the River Jordan, and the Midianites and the Amalekites have come from the east, crossed over the river, and set up camp in the valley of Jezreel. We read that in chapter 6, verse 33. And Gideon and his men are to the south of them, camped by the well or the spring of Herod. Now, when Israel attack the Midianites, the Midianites will flee in a southeasterly direction. So, down and to the right along the valley, crossing back over the River Jordan, then they'll turn south along the river a little way, and then head east into the region of Succoth and Penuel that was in our reading. And that's a distance of some 70 miles or so, that's like going from Liverpool to up to the southern edge of the Lake District. No wonder Gideon and his men were exhausted as they crossed the Jordan. And that was less than halfway. And so we see that these events recorded in chapters 7 and 8, well, they, they all didn't happen just in one morning. This battle went on for days, maybe over a week or so just sending out all the messengers through all the mountains to rally more troops, verse 24. That was no quick and easy task. Have you ever tried to get a good phone connection at the top of a mountain? You know what I mean. This battle went on for some time. And this morning I want to try and focus our attention on some of the key events which are recorded and see the lessons that are contained in them for us today. We'll divide chapters 7 and 8 into three sections and I have three points. Uh, point one is the longest. They get progressively shorter as we make our way through. And first of all I want us to look at the opening 15 verses of chapter 7 and I want to call this section God's Might and Kindness. I want you to note very carefully this phrase from verse 2 because this is the key to this whole section and indeed this is the key in the life of every Christian believer 
and in every Christian church. Here it is. Lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. You see, God is going to work in such a way that the only credible response can be, only God could have done that. That's how God works. He works like that today. Think about what God did in Christ on the cross. Only God could have done that. Think of what God does in conversion, in bringing people to accept and embrace the gospel, to love and embrace Christ, to flee and repent of their sins, to trust in Christ alone for salvation, to live in obedience to God and to do it gladly and joyfully, to have the will and the desire to pursue godliness and righteousness. Only God can produce that in the life of a sinner. Only God can produce such newness of life. And on account of that, all the glory, all the praise has to go to him. Lest Israel claim glory for itself against me. You see, to claim for yourself that you have done that which is the work of God alone, that is to set yourself against God. That's quite a serious thing, don't you think? Now for Israel, God will do it by reducing Gideon's army to a ludicrously low number of men. He begins by simply telling Gideon to say, if you're frightened, you can go home. And 22,000 out of 32,000 got up and walked away. Still too many, says God, because everyone needs to know that only God can do this. So tell them to go and take a drink from the river. And those who cup the water in their hands and raise the water to their mouth to drink, keep hold of them and send all the others away. And 9,700 who'd just put their heads down in the water and lapped it up like a dog, they wave goodbye and they go home, leaving Gideon with 300. Much has been claimed about these 300. Uh, they were the vigilant, diligent ones, say some, who kept their heads up as they drank and so forth. But they're often presented almost as 300 elite men, Israel's version of the SAS, who God has now put under Gideon's charge. The fact is, the text itself in the Bible makes no such comment or judgment about them. And actually, for us to try and present these 300 as somehow being very special, that actually causes us a huge problem. 
because it would put us in direct contradiction to what we've just read in verse 2. That this is going to be obvious that only God could have done this and that Israel will not be able to claim any glory for itself. There is nothing about these 300 which makes them special on the battlefield. There are no skills or qualities which they will bring which will make a contribution to Israel's victory, not in the eyes of anybody. Israel will not be able to say that by the hands of these men we have been saved, verse 2. It will be the might of God and his might alone that brings them victory. These 300 have no might. That God has done it must be the conclusion. Telling people what God has done. Showing people what God has done. Isn't that for us what being a Christian really is all about also? And supremely telling and showing of what God has done in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. This too is to be our concern. And with the 300 selected, Gideon looks down upon the Midianite camp in the valley below. And God displays great kindness to him by leading him down into the Midianite camp. We see it there in verses 9 through to 14, where he will hear these two foreign soldiers speaking in the darkness about the certain defeat that they are going to suffer by the sword of Gideon, and they even know his dad's name. This dream one of them has been given. The God of Israel is going to deliver us into Gideon's hand, they conclude. Now, that Midianite soldier had absolutely no idea about the role that he was playing under the sovereign hand of God as Gideon eavesdrops their conversation. That's worth thinking about and just pondering over, isn't it? That your God, your heavenly Father, holds that much sway over his creation that he can use anyone he wishes for his own purposes, even unbelievers and those who don't even know that God is doing it. It's incredible. It's wonderful. And of course, actually, the Bible has lots of examples of this all the way through, culminating in those who would take the life of Christ, not realising what they were actually bringing to completion in God's work of redemption for the whole world. And God, in his kindness, provides Gideon with one more encouragement and reassurance. Gideon did not seek it this time. But God knows about his fears. God knows about his anxieties. And God takes it upon himself to comfort and strengthen Gideon in this way. And it's wonderful, but we do need to be careful here. We need to be careful that we don't invent a doctrine out of this one event. A doctrine which says that God will always provide a sign to confirm what you will do. Or that you should not do anything 
until God has given you a sign or confirmation. That's not what's being taught here, not at all. The fact that God has done this kindness for Gideon does not permit you to invent a doctrine out of it. Jesus would say, wouldn't he, if you love me, wait for the signs I will give you so that you'll know you should keep my commandments. <laughs> no, he didn't say that, did he? That's not what he said. If you love me, just keep my commandments because you love me. No need for any signs of confirmation beforehand. Once the Holy Spirit had descended, sent by Christ and by the Father, that was a one-off event, of course, at Pentecost in that particular way, what, what, was, what were the disciples to do? Go into all the world. They didn't have to keep on waiting for series of signs and confirmations. For every step and decision that they took, they just got on with it and went. God, on one occasion, did give the Apostle Paul a dream to go to this place instead of that place. But like Gideon here, Paul did not seek it or request it, but God, God initiated it. Paul's conclusion was that the Lord had called him to go and preach the gospel in Macedonia. Now what we see here is a God who knows Gideon's fears and uncertainties, and in his great kindness, he grants him this assurance. And with that image in your mind, you can be certain that your heavenly father likewise knows all of your fears. He knows all of your uncertainties and he is willing and able to grant you the comfort and the strength which you need. Now, how will he do that for you today? Well, for the, for the most part, God will do that through the regular means of grace that he's provided for you through his word through the reading and preaching of it, and through prayer, through wise and godly counsel, and of course all of this through the work of his Holy Spirit. Take great encouragement as you observe God's care and kindness towards Gideon, his servant. God will likewise take such care and show such kindness towards you. And then this section concludes with this, this plan, which humanly speaking is as crazy as the plan to bring down the walls of Jericho in Joshua chapter 6. But as we saw, that plan worked because it was God's plan and God was in it and God did it his way. So that the only conclusion could be, it must have been God who did that. Now Gideon and his men compared to the Midianite army, are outnumbered to such a degree it's not even worth bothering trying to do the maths. The 300 stand above the valley, armed only with flaming torches hidden inside earthen pots uh, and a trumpet at their side. And the pots are smashed and the flames are revealed and the trumpets are sounded and the shout goes out and the Midianites must have looked up into the darkness 
to see and hear what must have appeared to be the front line of a vast army. And in the darkness, as total confusion and panic ensues, the Midianites begin to run for their lives and, mistaking one another for the enemy, actually start to kill one another. And those who do escape have Israel hot on their heels. And in the weakness and frailty of human flesh, God demonstrates his strength. Through unlikely people, God does great works of power and grace. That's God's way. God baffles the world completely. He baffles us sometimes with his choice of instruments that he uses and holds in his hand so that we can never, never boast in man, but only in God. He calls those who have no strength to stand in his strength. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. Only God. His is the wisdom. His is the might and the authority. His is the fight. His the glory. His the praise. And the job is being done as Midian and the 300 summon others from Israel to come and help them. And as he does that in the next section from uh, verse 23 of chapter 7 and on into chapter 8, we're confronted with these uh, different events which are a discouragement to Gideon. And so we're going to consider, secondly, a leader's discouragements. As the Midianites flee... Chapter 7 concludes with Gideon summoning others from Israel to join in the battle as they pursue their prey along the valley towards and across the River Jordan. Two Midianite princes are killed as the Midianites are routed before them. And then there are these events which cause great frustration to Gideon as all of this is going on. First of all, the people of Ephraim, who've been invited to come and join the battle, they come complaining to Gideon in verse 1 of chapter 8. There's always someone complaining. And their complaint is basically that they have been overlooked and not given the prominence in this battle that they feel they should have been given. A bit of pride, maybe. A bit of envy. So here is Gideon following exactly the instructions that the Lord has given him. And in doing that, Ephraim have taken the huff because they were excluded. It's an interesting point in this account that's recorded for us. May I just say that many a pastor has left the ministry a broken man and in utter despair over issues such as this. 
I'm very thankful that the Lord has very largely preserved me from these kinds of things here at Belvedere Road. But we all need to take note of what's actually recorded here. Here is a man leading the Lord's people and, as best as he is able, remaining faithful to the teaching and guidance and instruction that God's Word has given him. But he's being rebuked and criticised by the people who think that they ought to have been given a more prominent role and have more say and influence. And that happens in churches in exactly the same way. Now, of course, even in churches, sometimes the one who is leading actually has got it all hopelessly wrong and does need to be challenged and rebuked. But even having said that, much more common is to find a faithful pastor, a faithful leader who's getting it in the neck for no good reason, really, by people who simply have an inflated sense of their own importance and making demands for themselves. Now, let me just say, there's no subliminal message going on here. I'm not secretly getting at someone. I'm not getting at anyone. I mention it only because it's in the text. And I'm just saying that all of us, we need to make a note of it and, and we all need to be careful that we don't have this same kind of spirit that has risen up in the people of Ephraim as we see them here. And the response of Gideon is very noteworthy as well in verses 2 and 3. You might be very tempted in Gideon's position to really give these people both barrels and put them straight. But actually he replies with a great deal of grace. He compliments Ephraim on the importance of their contribution so far. And against that minimizes what he has done. And he does that rather than just bite back and try to justify himself. He could very legitimately have justified himself. But he displays great meekness here, actually. He displays great humility. And he returns their criticism with praise and thanks. Now, of course, we're in Proverbs on Wednesday evenings in our Bible studies and of course, in Proverbs, we read this at the beginning of chapter 15. A soft answer turns away wrath. It seems that's exactly what has happened here with Gideon. And he appeases the people of Ephraim. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. Some really practical lessons in this chapter. And then there's Succoth and Penuel in verses 4 to 17. Gideon and his men, well, they've already killed 120,000 Midianites and they're in hot pursuit of one final major group of them. About 15,000 in total, we're told, being led by two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna. Gideon and his men are exhausted, chapter 8, verse 4, but still in hot pursuit. There's a, a good lesson in godly perseverance there, isn't there? 
exhausted, but still in pursuit. Sounds a bit like Paul with his taking the gospel out into all of the known world. Are you prepared for that in the Lord's work? Or does exhaustion sound like too big an ask? Exhausted, but still in pursuit. That's a great example. Well, they arrive at Succoth and then Penuel, and at both places ask for food and provision, and from the people there receive the same answer, twice. And basically the people of Succoth and Penuel have taken this view. How can we be sure that you will defeat these two Midianites? If you don't, and if they defeat you, and then they find out that we helped you, what will they do to us? In other words, we're not prepared to put our lives on the line for you. And these are God's own people saying this. And immediately, what sprang to my mind was what we're told about Aquila and Priscilla, who, said Paul, risked their own necks. And I think he was talking literally when he said that. Risked their own necks for my life. Hmm. Well, we, we read that after the battle, Gideon returned to those two towns and severely punished them for their treachery against their own people. There's no real comment about that in the scripture there, but he's certainly not condemned for doing it, which is interesting. It made me think, you know, we've, we've known largely only great ease as Christians in the UK. And that's been the situation for several hundred years, perhaps until the last decade or so. Probably we've had too much ease as Christians. So much so that do we actually feel as Christians in countries like ours that a life of ease is our God-given right? And that, despite all that we read in the New Testament about the certain persecution that the church will suffer and of how such times of suffering can actually be the means of great blessing. The day could come, and maybe not too far away, when someone's looking through our church website or listening to the sermons, and they decide that they don't like what they're seeing and hearing, and they report it. And I, maybe on my own, maybe with others with me, are charged with various hate speech crimes. Well, with Succoth and Penuel open in front of us on the page of the Word, are you ready to stand alongside and be counted with God's people? 
or will you retreat into the shadows in order to save your own neck like Succoth and Penuel did? How much does Christ and his church, how much does God and his glory mean to you? It's worth thinking about and asking ourselves, isn't it? Just a thought. Well, these are various discouragements that those who lead the Lord's people have always known. And we're very foolish if we ignore them, thinking that they have no relevance for us today, thinking that uh, they don't need to concern us. We, we should allow these kinds of things to, to be a wake-up call to us, and that we heed them and learn from them together as God's people. Well, in the final section of this uh, story of Gideon as the judge of Israel, we're going to conclude from verse 22 of chapter 8 through to the end of the chapter. And what we actually notice here with Gideon, to our great sadness, is someone struggling to finish well. Struggling to finish well. He makes a statement he doesn't live up to in verse 23. The people want to make him king and he refuses and says that the Lord shall rule over you. You, you might think, very good, Gideon. Well said, that man. Hear, hear. But you actually see him gradually starting to behave as if he is the king in verses 24 to 27. We see that, that he makes an ephod. There's something similar to that known as an ephod that the high priest used to wear in the tabernacle. It was a, a breastplate. And we can't be certain exactly what the deal was with this ephod that Gideon had made. But what we can tell is that it really isn't very good at all. Now, seemingly, um, it was meant as some kind of memorial to their victory over the Midianites. It was made from the gold that had been plundered. Uh, but what we discover is that the issue of idolatry has never really departed from Israel. And this ephod, in some way and in some measure, becomes an object of idolatrous worship. They play the harlot with it. Verse 27. Uh, whatever it was, this is serious. And we read that it became a snare to Gideon. This is going to drag him down. Unbelievably, in his grace, God still gives them 40 years of peace, even though this is going on. <laughs> Amazing grace we sing, don't we? We need a new word 
amazing just doesn't cut it, does it? When you see the extent of God's grace towards them. And it just reminds me again the extent of God's grace that has been shown to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. The extent of God's grace that he shows to you in Christ. And in verses 29 to 31, just before he died, we read of Gideon with many wives and even with concubines. He's given himself over to a lifestyle which really has no place for one who knows and loves God and his word, for one who has known God use him the way God has used Gideon, the experience that Gideon has, ha has had of God in all his kindness and faithfulness towards him. And what an important topic this is for us to consider as Christians as we draw this message to a close this morning. Finishing well, even finishing. Only the other week, some of you like me will have heard with great sadness of a, a popular Christian apologist who's had his ministry completely tarnished by revelations of sexual mis misconduct which have surfaced following his recent death. Some have ministries destroyed in their own lifetime. Only last year, a Christian family and a Christian church endured the agonies of a husband and a church pastor receiving a long prison sentence for sexual crimes. A few years ago, a much-respected pastor, due to speak at a Christian conference, took his own life as details of his sexual immorality became public. There's one who prowls in churches, seeking whom he may devour. There's one who seeks to bring shame upon Christ by causing his people to do shameful things. You need to pray. Pray for yourselves. Pray especially for those in public ministry. What a testimony it either is or isn't if you do or you don't finish well. What a glorious thing it is when a Christian finishes well. What wonderful funeral services we've had over the years as we've rejoiced in one who has finished well and now enjoys their heavenly reward. That's why people like the Apostle Paul talk about this theme as much as he does. Pressing on for the prize of the upward call. What could Paul say? I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. 
Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who've loved his appearing. But he can say, I know I fought the fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. I'm finishing well. What a glorious witness to the work of Christ in a believer's life. Isn't it remarkable how you can study the life of a man like Gideon and from it take so many lessons for good and then to be brought up sharply with a warning about being careful to finish well? Isn't God kind to provide us with so many examples with those who have finished well for our encouragement and comfort? Remain close to Christ. Abide in him, and he will abide in you. Flee from Satan, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. These are the promises of God's word. Far more difficult days may be coming. Prepare yourself in Christ to be able to stand fast. Give of yourself to the Lord so that in life and even after your death, the only conclusion that people can come to about you and the kind of life you lived and the kind of person you were and today the kind of person you are is this. Only God could have done that. Isn't this our prayer? Isn't this our desire? That the work of the gospel in each of us, the life of Christ in each of us, is such that when people look at you and at me, they can only possibly come to one conclusion. In him, in her, only God could have done that. Well, may that be your testimony and mine right to the end, to his glory and to his praise.